You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. This is Michael Litchens, your faithful editor and host here with you once again. And I'm proud to welcome Thomas Moses. He's a good friend of mine. Many of you know his writings on Catholic Exchange. He's written about his life as a Melkite seminarian. He's talked about Lent and what it means. And he answers a lot of great questions out there. I met him through New Hampshire, so he's someone who knows the harsh, harsh winters we have out here. Uh, he's done a lot of great things, though, and currently he's studying with the seminary for the Melkite Greek Catholic Church, which is a church in communion with Rome for anyone who's still asking that question. So, Dom, welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm excited to be here. It's absolutely our pleasure to have you here. And so this week, I, the reason why I invited you on, Tom, is, as you know, I want to talk and introduce folks to what Lent and really Holy Week, now that we're going to be in it, what Holy Week looks like on an Eastern Catholic basis. Uh, so first, uh, just to answer anyone's questions, can you tell us a little bit about what the Melkite Church is? Sure. I think one of the easiest ways to explain the Melkite Greek Catholic Church would be to make a comparison to the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is a ritual, a form of worship that comes from Rome. Mm -hmm. The Orthodox and Catholics of the Eastern Byzantine flavor all find their form of worship from Byzantium or Constantinople. And the Malkites are one of those churches that has its roots in the Middle East, Syria and Lebanon primarily. So in the Byzantine world, there's a form of worship of a set of ritual, a set of uh, symbolic, uh, some call it a symbolic matrix. Do you remember matrices from high school where you have a, a, a box that has 16 numbers in it and another box that has 16 numbers and you have this, they, they, all the numbers match up with each other. So there's this symbolic matrix that is unique to the Byzantine churches and in particular to the Malkite church. So when I refer in this interview to the Malkite church, there'll be many things in common that the Malkite church has with other Slavic and uh, Orthodox and other Eastern Catholic churches, and even some common things with the Roman Catholic church as well. Uh, But I'll refer just as out of simplicity to just purely from the Malkite point of view, but, but the, but just be aware there's many overlaps. I'm not saying that there's any exclusive uh, rights of any of these things to the Malkite Church. Sure, of course. And this is a bit of a random question for you, but I remember you said that you actually got to go and worship with the, your fellow Melkites in Syria, was it? Yes, I did. Yeah. Oh, what was that like? Just out of curiosity, yeah. when was that? In 2010, before the Civil War started, oh. I spent Holy Week and Easter in Damascus and other cities in Syria, and it was a wonderful experience, a quite beautiful I'll go into a little more detail later, but one of the things that we did was uh, go to the Good Friday service, which we celebrate on Thursday night in the Mm -hmm. Malkite Church. And I was in sort of the St. Peter's Square of the Malkite Church, which is in Damascus. It was a a four-hour service, all in Arabic. I didn't understand a word of it. I kind of had a sense of what was going on. And it's it went by so quickly. I didn't I didn't even realize that that it had been four hours long. And I turned around and walked out from one of the front pews and came toward the back. And there was just thousands of people all all in the 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 square right outside of the church. The church was packed, and uh, it was quite a beautiful, moving, and inspiring thing to see. Yeah, I'd imagine absolutely. 
and you mentioned of uh, that there was a Good Friday on Holy Thursday, so I guess that can lead to our next question. But can you give us a sketch of what Holy Week looks like with the Melkites and other Eastern churches? Sure. Holy Week, at least in the Malkite and some of the other Eastern churches that are fall under the Byzantine umbrella, would celebrate a lot of the morning services that would primarily, particularly be historically would have happened on, say, Friday morning. We would celebrate that the night before. So mm-hmm. the crucifixion that happens on, on Good Friday, we celebrate on Thursday night. And the burial service, which would have happened the betrayal of Judas in the Last Supper, which would have happened on Thursday, according to John's Gospel, we celebrate on Wednesday night. So it's a, everything is a, is a half day earlier in the, in the Malkite way of doing things. That developed over a complicated history of sure. uh, that I, I don't quite understand yet, but the, I don't think the scholars really understand how it all ended up happening. There's some guesses, but uh, over, over time, the services all moved back from their original times toward the night before. Okay, yeah, and that's not too uncommon. We do something similar in the Latin Rite where we do things the night before, and we do that almost every week, every celebration, except for Holy Week. We stick very closely to a regimented schedule, so makes perfect oh, wow. sense to me. Uh, something I think that is very alien, I know for someone like me who is a Latin Catholic but worships at the Belkite Church very frequently, you guys prostrate during Holy Week in Lent. What is that, and wh- what does that signify for you all? Well, the prostration is a bowing down all the way to the ground and touching the for the, yeah. your forehead to the ground, and it originally comes from the Persian Empire in the before Christ, and came into the Greek speaking world through Alexander the Great, and then it was part of the civil court. It was a way of showing respect to the emperor or to to uh, royal court officials, and part of it is blowing a kiss and then the part where you actually go down to the floor and touch your head to the to the, the your forehead to the ground that uh that's a symbol of of servitude which was part of the of the greek royal world and in 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 the roman world uh ended up being adopted in christianity in the east uh in order to show that same reverence that same servitude toward christ so over time the practical reality of bowing down to the ground and touching the forehead to the ground in order to show a servitude to Christ the King, just like you would also do that for an emperor and other periods of, of uh, human history and other geographical areas. You, you would do this for Christ, and then it takes on another meaning. So there's a practical reason that something starts, and then it takes on more layers and layers of symbolic meaning. So another way I've I've heard about the prostration spoken about is that when we bow down to the ground and touch our head to the ground, showing this humility is, is, is fallen down in our sinfulness, fallen down, fa- having fallen away from God. And when we rise up again, that's uh, symbolic of our, our rising before God. And so this whole period of Lent is when there's the most frequent prostrations are happening throughout Lent. It's uh, even more pronounced in, in Holy Week. It certainly is. And actually, I never realized that about the prostrations. I had heard some of this before. Uh, and I also learned from prostrations that historically the Eastern Church has never had pews because I could not figure out how this would have developed with a pew because that is <laughs> right. the most complicated thing I've ever encountered in my life. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or anyone who may not know what I'm talking about, historically in the East, they didn't always have pews. And similar to Rome, actually, if you go to ancient Roman churches, there was never pews you stood you or you sat or whatever and when i first went there and was trying to prostrate i'm like how do you 
I'm a huge man. How do I do this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of, without pews in the church, there's a lot of movement that happens. It's almost like a dance between the people and the clergy and the altar servers, uh, uh, all this movement that's going on between the, be, be, between the, the people living out this dramatization of, of the life of Christ yes. uh, in, in salvation history. Right in front of our eyes, we're all kind of taking part in it together in, in this uh, beautiful dance we call the liturgy. <laughs> A dance is exactly right. The only liturgical dance I can get behind, to be honest with you. So. <laughs> And of course, uh, also with the Avelkai Church and Eastern Churches in general, and if I'm mispronouncing this, please correct me, but it's at the Epitaphios, if I recall? Uh, I believe that's, 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 you could pronounce that, would be fine, yeah, okay. that's, that's, uh, that's what it's called. <laughs> okay, and that's a sort of cloth icon that you all lay at the tomb. Uh, it's an old tradition, but can you tell us where that tradition might have started, what part it plays in the liturgy during Holy Week? So the Epitaphios is... Far as I understood, the the earliest one that's been found or that's still in existence is from the 12th century. So it's at least as as old as that, and mm-hmm. I think that it came became part of uh, the Good Friday or the Great Great Friday or Holy Friday service and procession. Uh, that's that began sometime in the 15th century. What what I kind of find interesting, and I don't I uh, haven't been able to speak to my professors about this already, but the the epitaphios it's it's an icon of mary holding christ christ is laid in a tomb there's other characters from the the gospel scenes of the burial service that are appearing in this in this image around the epitaphios is written the noble joseph took down from the tree your spotless body and wrapped it in pure linen with spices and laid it for burial in a new tomb this image that's on the epitaphios, which is usually about, I would guess, maybe two feet by three feet, uh, elaborate, elaborately decorated cloth with a woven icon woven into it. It's it's very similar to what we call the Antimensian. It, it's it's another cloth icon, which is a very similar icon is on it, and that is the the Antimensian is what the Eucharist is celebrated on every Sunday. So a priest would have his own antimension and every time he celebrates the liturgy and celebrates the Eucharist, that, that happens, the consecration happens on top of this antimension, which is very similar to the epitaphios that we take in procession on Good Friday. And uh, so on Good Friday, when we have a service in the afternoon on Good Friday, we commemorate the taking of the body of Christ down from the cross and placed into a tomb. And then uh, Friday night, which is celebrating the Saturday morning funeral hymn of Christ, it's, it's this uh, Friday night. It's just, it's basically the funeral of Christ that is celebrated by the church and by the people in in the church. And so the epitaphios is taken in, in procession around the around the church building, held up over the heads of some of the the uh, men in the in the parish and everybody passes underneath it when they enter back into the into the church and it's symbolic of this entering into the tomb with Christ entering into Christ's death that we will be made new and resurrected the next day uh at at the at the uh paschal vigil <clears throat> uh if, if i may if i may just uh, sure. say say another thing that i think is is important for understanding generally what's going on in Holy Week and, and Easter uh, would be just 
the way that the Byzantine liturgy developed in general. No, no, go right ahead. Go ahead and tell us a little <laughs> bit about the Byzantine liturgy. I'd love to hear it. In, in the Byzantine liturgy, there's all of these practical historical developments that happen happened within the liturgy that started in the four, 400s and finished in about the 1400s where the, the liturgy, the, the whole rite became uh, solid and, and re- resembles very closely what we do today. But during that period, there was a, a development where the architecture and the iconography and the hymnography all started to weave together. And it's sort of like this tapestry uh, or a or carpet where you see all of these different of the Byzantine culture and Byzantine form of worship weaving together. And so on top of the practical historical reality, uh, we wave the cloth over the gifts to keep the bugs away. Over time ends up taking on a spiritual, mystical meaning that this waving of the cloth over the bread and wine would be symbolic of the angels hovering over the gifts. One one thing I think is common in most of the churches that celebrate Holy Week and Easter is that we're we're remembering a historical event and we're watching the life of Christ uh, unfold in the last week of his life. So we have on Saturday before Easter, we have the resurrection of Lazarus. So Christ is showing his divine foreknowledge by knowing that that Lazarus has has died. And he comes to to raise Lazarus from the dead. He he weeps at his tomb, showing his human nature, and then raises Lazarus. And it angers the authorities uh, that he that he's done this. And so th- it's sort of foreshadowing uh, what we celebrate on the Saturday before uh, the day before Palm Sunday. Really, is showing foreshadowing what's going to end up happening. Uh, what's going to end up coming pass in the next week during this holy week and palm sunday jesus has this triumphal entry into jerusalem and people are waving palms and crying out to him and the the authorities are are telling him to to silence the people that are basically showing him reverence and worship here is where we actually begin holy week and and what ends up happening for the rest of holy week is this sort of weaving together like in a carpet or in a or in a tapestry, a weaving together of of the historical account of salvation history and the life of Jesus, the historical realities of salvation history beyond just the life of Jesus in the in the New, the Old Testament and the life of Joseph, the life of Job, uh, in 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 Jonah the prophet, and and that's being woven together with parables and teachings from from the Synoptic Gospels is being woven together with the historical sequence or chronology of John's gospel, also woven together with the, the parables and teachings of Christ. You have the, the actors or the, the people in the drama of salvation history. Uh, in that last, last week of Christ, you have Judas, the Jewish authorities, uh, the myrrh-bearing women, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. So you have, and, and Mary, the mother of God, of course, and you have all of these all of these things converging in, into Holy Week, and over maybe a thousand years, this is this hymnography has and the ritual has just been developed had developed from about 600 to to the the 1500s. All of these uh, aspects of our faith came together and ended up developing what we have as Holy Week. So it's a very complicated 
set of services during Holy Week. Um, but it's very rich theologically and 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 quite beautiful. I I I when I was kind of trying to prepare for this, I was looking through all of our hymnography, each of the services during Holy Week. Um, and I think one of the reasons why I wanted to do that was uh, the rule of of worship is the rule of belief. So this is yes. So just what we what we what we hear and sing and participate in in. Holy Week services through the hymnography is what the church is believing and understanding and interpreting this life of Christ, this salvation history, this last week of, of the life of Christ by singing this hymnography and, and participating in these services and these rituals. Not only are we remembering the life of Christ as if we're just keeping a memory alive, but it's almost like we're participating in it uh, in this one-time event or these or these events that happen one time, we're participating in them, remembering them by bringing them and making them alive now. So when we go through Holy Week and we're singing these hymns that, that are not only remembering the parables of Christ and the events of Christ, so, so on, on Holy and Great Monday, we begin singing this beautiful troparian or uh, troparian is a hymn that we we sing uh that that really identifies the day of the year or or that particular feast day and the the hymn goes behold the bridegroom is coming in the middle of the night blessed is the servant he shall find awake but the one he shall find neglectful will not be worthy of him beware therefore o my soul do not fall into a deep slumber lest you be delivered to death, and the door of the kingdom be closed on you. Watch instead and cry out, Holy, holy, holy are you, O our God. So we have in this one hymn, we have at least three different parables uh, being woven together um, in, in order for us to, to be remembered of the importance of keeping watch and being vigil and living a life of virtue and repenting from sin living up to our baptismal uh, vocation, uh, which is the universal call to holiness. This is primarily a reference to the bridegroom and the ten virgins, the, the, the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins. There's many more hymns, uh, hundreds of hymns, I think, uh, during Holy Week, and dozens of them are, have this, this parable woven into them in our, in our own struggle to be like the wise virgins instead of like the foolish virgins. One hymn says, let us trim our lamps and shine with the virtues in right faith in order to be ready to go in with him to the marriage feast like the wise virgins of the Lord. For this bridegroom who is God grants us all an incorruptible crown. This is on Holy and Great Tuesday. And we, we have a, again here this weaving together of the, the historical uh, experience of the life of Christ and our own struggle for holiness and our own warning on Monday night, we remember the parable of the, the ten virgins. And we also begin to hear references referring to the ten to the parable of the, the talents that the master gives out. And there's some really, I, th this was actually one of the most uh, sort of eye-opening, or I should say one of the, the, the hymns that got me to think, think a lot about my experience in the church when I first heard it. Uh, when I first started coming back to the church as an adult, and, and we, we sing this on, on Monday night, let us increase the talent of grace, each one according to his ability. Let one adorn his wisdom with good deeds. 
Let another beautify the celebration of the service. Let someone strong in faith communicate the word to the uninitiated, and another dispense his wealth to the poor. Thus we shall increase what has been loaned to us, and like faithful stewards of grace, shall be worthy of the master's joy. The, the beauty of it for me was to see, to see myself in that parable as having one talent. Uh, so first of all, it was like an, an act of humility to, to not assume that I had two talents or five talents. So I, I, I have this one talent, and then what, what am I going to do with it? And, and, and it, it's almost like the hymnography of the church, which uh, developed over from the, the 600s to the 900s, uh, is, is interpreting the gospel message and interpreting the life of Christ for the church to be sung by the church. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just this, this uh, quite beautiful way of, way of praying that, that, I've, that I've experienced in the Malchite church. Yes, very beautiful. And I loved what you said about, well, I loved what you said about a lot of things, but I really enjoyed what you said uh, because I ended up doing my grad work on it about how the liturgy becomes a little drama, which is something that Hans von von Balthazar and Romano Guardini were really big on the 20th century. But as I found out right. reading this, is, no, we've always right. seen this as a drama all along. And it's amazing to watch when you can see an ancient liturgy, whether it's East or West, like, it's amazing how it brings you in and you feel like you're sure. actually there. And I love it. For all our listeners, I'm going to be putting up uh, pictures and links to videos in case you want to hear or listen or watch any of these liturgies so you can have an experience because sometimes it's trying to describe this is a lot like if you had to describe the Vatican, but you could only use words. I'd be <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Uh, you know, it's big. <laughs> so Dob's doing a great job here. And speaking of drama, one of my favorite things about Holy Week and when I go to the Melkite Church here in New Hampshire is how you all do Holy Saturday or what we might call Easter Vigil or the Paschal Vigil. And it is a little drama. It's like a little drama of seeing the harrowing of hell. And it always excites me. It always I just get excited talking about it as we're <laughs> almost through Lent. Thanks be to God. But uh, for folks who haven't seen it, how would you describe this little drama? And what does it mm. teach us about this Easter mystery? Well, I describe the, dra the drama as the feast of all feasts. And so the, the, the church as a community has been preparing for this, this one feast for the last six weeks, uh, seven weeks, really, uh, with fasting and, uh, and, and sort of more penitential type prayers. And so the, the drama that unfolds uh, in singing Christ is risen from the dead and he has trampled upon death. It, it, it is, it's just as, uh, it, it's almost like um, a, a re-experiencing, yeah, a, a remembering of the resurrection of Christ in, the, in, in, in a very real and personal way. And b because the whole community is, is singing out these hymns of Christ's resurrection together, uh, and again, in this sort of dance with the, with the deacons and the, and the, and the priest, uh, it, it's almost like, to some degree, feeling the same way the apostles would have felt when they found uh, that Christ had risen from the dead. I mean, obviously we, we don't probably couldn't uh, understand their experience for, for the most part, but to some degree through this uh, ritual of, of the Easter vigil, we, we are participating in the joyful, the joyful good news that Christ has risen from the dead and uh, that death is conquered and that we have eternal life uh, found in, found in the in the resurrection of Christ and in in our resurrection eventually on the last day. One of the things I'm curious to know about is 
you guys actually explicitly celebrate the harrowing of hell in your liturgy, which I don't think many people in the West are even aware is a dogma that we believe in the Catholic Church. Uh, if you're comfortable talking about such a great theology, can you tell us a little bit about the harrowing of hell and how has that played out in your liturgy? Uh, the the harrowing of hell is played out in the liturgy where the at least in the Melkite Church, and I, and I know the the other Byzantine churches do this a little differently, but in the Melkite Church, where first we we begin in the church, and it's a and the church is pitch black, and mm-hmm. the priest is holding a candle, and he he says, uh, "Come, all you faithful, take light from the light that never fades," and one by one in this pitch black church, each of the parishioners go up to the priest and and light his candle or her candle from the priest candle. And by the end, uh, all the church is starting to light up with all of these candles and we're processing out into the uh, out, outside of the church. And we have the, the beginning uh, of the, of the service outside of the, the doors of the church and the priest holding, holding the cross pounds on the door and somebody inside the door says, who goes there? I think this is what he says. Who goes there? But there's this dialogue that happens between the priest and the person inside the church. And the, the doors are opened and it is, it's symbolic, this entrance of the priest into the church, breaking open the doors of death uh, happens. And the, the people going into the church behind the priest, and this is all representative of us, Christ being the firstborn from the dead, trampling down death and uh, the people entering with the priest is symbolic of the people entering with Christ into new life. And the harrowing of hell, exactly what you're saying, the, the souls of, of the dead taken from Hades and uh, entering into eternal life. It's beautiful to hear that. And I mean, that for me is one of the great high moments of Easter. We don't always hear about it on the West. And that's why it's for me as someone who first saw that, that was a beautiful thing. And as usual, we'll put a links and images so people can kind of have an idea of what we're talking about here. And there's some beautiful iconography, even in the West, oddly enough, of the harrowing of hell. And it's a wonderful theology that if you can, if you have time to read this Holy Week, please read up on it. It's really good. Now, Tom, uh, for your last question, I appreciate everything you talked about. For anyone who might want to learn more about you, the Melkite Church, or anything we've talked about, uh, where can they go? Uh, well, first, I'd, I'd recommend visiting a, a parish if, if you can find one in, uh, nearby you. N- near nearby, uh, We have a, a, about 45 parishes across the United States and a lot of the major cities. But you could also go to www.melkite.org. M-E-L-K-I-T-E dot org uh, to get a little bit of uh, an introduction to the resources that are available uh, to teach a little bit about the Malkite Church. So Perfect. And uh, that we'll put on CatholicExchange.com as well, as well as some other resources so you can understand what we've talked about a little bit about Holy Week. Just to help you get in the mood for Holy Week. Uh, if there's anything else you need to know about me, folks, you can get email me immediately at editor@catholicexchange.com. Always glad to help. But Tom, I just want to thank you so, so much for coming on here and enlightening us. I actually learned quite a bit this talk. So thank you very much for staying with us and talking with us. It, I know our listeners are going to appreciate it immensely. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for having me, Michael. My pleasure. And to all of you listening, stay tuned for this week. We'll have a few more prayers as well as some meditations and we'll be glad to help. <laughs>